Well, Advent is a story about Jesus Christ transcending the barrier of human sin. And in today's passage, we're going to see that Jesus transcends the barriers of cultural construct to save a Samaritan woman. Now, it may take longer for you and I to relate to the Samaritan woman. I think many of us in our demography, we might relate more to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. But John chapter 4 takes us into this story. It's a heartfelt story. And our goal today is to come in to her story and to see in her our deepest need. That the deepest need of the Samaritan woman is the same need that we have. And the Savior offers to her a solution that is the same solution that you and I need. The title of this morning's sermon is Saving Sinners, Satisfying Souls. Saving Sinners, Satisfying Souls. Jesus offers the Samaritan woman living water. And so there's just two questions that we're going to answer that I want you to keep in mind as we go through the text. The first is, what is living water? Jesus says he offers living water. What is it? And how do we get it? You can't get it at Costco. How do you get it? We know you get it from Jesus, but what does that even mean? How does Jesus enable us to get the living water? Those are the questions we're going to answer. If you have God's word, please take it and turn with me to John chapter 4. John chapter 4, meet me there in chapter 1. I mean, I'm sorry, in verse 1. John chapter 4, starting in verse 1, where we're going to see point number 1 is crossing barriers to save sinners. That's what Jesus is doing in this passage. Crossing barriers to save sinners. Now let me read to you the first six verses to get us started. This is what John records for us, John the Apostle. He says, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, Although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. Verse 4, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Remember that. It was about the sixth hour. That's 12 noon, six hours after sunrise. Now, verse 1 alludes to what we saw last week. We're not going to spend too much time there. Jesus' ministry was reaching more people than John the Baptist. And this was by divine design. The Pharisees heard about this, obviously, and they were on to Jesus. Verse 2 gives us a parenthetical note that Jesus was delegating much of the baptizing ministry to his disciples. We aren't told why. Uh, There's various uh, assumptions that I'm not going to get into. I want to focus on the context and getting to this Samaritan woman. Verse 3 sets you up for the narrative. And here's where we start to preach. Okay, we, We start to understand that Jesus is heading from Judea in the south. Here's a map for you. And I'm not good with graphics, so forgive me for just going on Google and finding stuff. Jesus is heading from the south up to Galilee in the north. And in between is Samaria. So you can see on the left 
It shows you a direct route that Google Maps would give you. This is your direct route. You go directly through Samaria. You go through the city or the town of Sychar. And you'll see on that white map the roundabout way, the devout Jewish way to do it at all costs, to set your Google Map settings to avoid toll roads and avoid Samaria, right? You go around. On your right is just more, that's from your ESV study Bible. That is the study Bible that I would personally recommend to you. The ESV study Bible, that's the map from the back, and that basically gives you a more accurate geography. And so in verse 4, when it says Jesus and his disciples had to pass through Samaria, that gives you a note that typical Jews, devout Jews, would not pass through Samaria unless they had to. But I think if you know anything about Jesus and John recording Jesus' ministry, this is the Son of God. He could fly over Samaria. He did not have to. He had to because of his divine mission. He was on a mission, one, to save this Samaritan woman, and two, to begin to save Samaritans. And that ties into our Advent series that this week and next week, you're, begin, you're going to begin to see that Jesus is not just the Savior to Israel. He's not just Nicodemus' Savior. He is the Savior to the world. He begins to save Samaritans, people that the Jews hated. Now, New Testament scholar Craig Keener explains that Jesus crosses at least three significant barriers in this story. First, he passes the social ethnic barrier of uh, centuries of Jewish Samaritan prejudice. Second, he passes the gender barrier. And third, he passes a a moral barrier imposed by this man's assumed behavior. Uh, My wife's name is Meryl. Whenever I see moral, I just... Morial, you know, that's just part of my tongue, right? But first, ethnic distinction is God-given and should be upheld, okay? But ethnocentrism and racism, we would all agree, these are human constructs. The gender distinction between male and female is God-given and should be maintained. But a male-dominated society where women are devalued, that's a fallen human construct, Sexuality driven by love and commitment is God-given. In fact, love and commitment in the context of marriage is what makes our reproductive process distinct from animals. Think about that. But as you will see with the Samaritan woman, sex outside of God's context and divorce is a fallen human construct. Right? So you have God's given distinction which are not barriers. These are distinctions that should be maintained. But humans, created in God's image, take God's order and naturally we make it into disorder. And so Jesus comes and he comes to cross these human constructs to break them down to maintain and restore the dignity of his image in his people. So first, you're going to see the, the Samaritan woman, all three of these barriers stand in her way of her and what you would suppose a Jewish man, Jesus. First, she's a Samaritan. And so we mentioned earlier that the Jews hated the Samaritans. And so Jesus would would indeed cross this racial and ethnic barrier. There are two things about the Samaritans that the Jews hated. They viewed the Samaritans, one, as racially impure. 
and, as, and second, as religious heretics, racially impure and religiously heretical. How did this conflict arise? Well, Samaria, Samaria was the capital city of the northern kingdom. And so sometimes people refer to the entire northern kingdom as Samaria. And the northern kingdom fell to the, Sir, the Assyrians around 722 or 721 B.C. So there are some Jews who stayed and they intermarried with the Assyrians. And so right away the Jews viewed the Samaritans as half-breeds. They're racially impure. To make matters worse, around 400 B.C., the Samaritans, they built a rival temple on Mount Gerizim. You're going to see this come up in verse 10. Is that rather than the temple in Jerusalem, which, were, which was instructed in the Old Testament, the Samaritans built their own temple in the north. And the reason they did this is because they didn't believe in the rest of the Bible. There's something called the Samaritan Pentateuch. And what that is, is the Samaritans only believed in the first five books of the Bible, the five books of Moses. And so they rejected the prophets, they rejected the, the, the wisdom literature, the writings. And so as a result, they did not have the rest of the Old Testament truth. And so by the first century, the Samaritans had developed their own version of syncretized Judaism. And so the Jews viewed them as heretics, and that's why they hated each other. So first, this woman was a Samaritan. Secondly, she was a woman. And this was a male-dominated society. It was a patriarchal culture. And so it would, it would have been socially unacceptable for a Jewish male rabbi like Jesus to engage her in conversation. And so Jesus is crossing a fallen human barrier to restore this woman to dignity in his kingdom. And so she was a Samaritan woman. Not only was she a Samaritan and a woman, thirdly, she was a, a moral outcast in society. And you'll see this in her story. Uh, whether you're Jewish or you're a Samaritan, in, Mediter uh, in Mediterranean culture, there was a moral hierarchy. And if you're Jewish, even more so. And so this woman was at the bottom of that hierarchy. So if Nicodemus from John 3 was at the top of that hierarchy socially, this woman is at the bottom. She had five husbands, past tense, and now she's living with a man who is not her husband, who would not give her legitimacy with a certificate of marriage. And so Jesus comes and he confronts her sinful lifestyle, but he wants to save her. And he convicts her of her sin. Why? To convert her into holiness. And so Jesus crosses all three of those barriers. But I want you to look at verse 6 once again. Look at verse 6 of your Bibles, and I want you to notice a very simple detail, which I mentioned, is that she was drawing water. She was by herself at the sixth hour. That's 12 noon. So I want you to consider this question. What is she doing there by herself at one of the hottest points of the day? And why was she alone? A little bit of detail is that back then women would not be drawing water at noon because that's the hottest time of the day. They would either be there earlier in the morning or later in the afternoon where it's much cooler. And, and also back then women would typically come in groups to draw water. So the fact that she's there by herself at noon when nobody is there speaks to her shame. 
in society. She was a moral outcast. Now, I know why she's there at noon, and I know why she's there by herself, but here's a question you must consider. Why is Jesus there at noon by himself? Why is he there at when? The sixth hour. Why was he tired already? This is the Son of God. Why is he tired at noon? We know we can say all kinds of things about his humanity, but that's a whole different sermon. Why was Jesus there by himself at noon? Why was he so tired and exhausted by the sixth hour? This is the Son of God. Why was he alone? Why did he send his disciples into town to buy food? Why were his disciples not with him at the sixth hour? Some of you who are astute know where I'm going. But you've got to wait till the end of the sermon. Why was he there? Right? And why does he send his Jewish disciples into the city to buy food? Who would prepare that food? The dirty hands of Samaritans. Oh, there is nothing Jesus do, does that is on accident. There is nothing John writes that does not point forward to something greater and some greater fulfillment. Verses 5 to 6 just, give you some de- just gives you some details of where this event took place at Jacob's well, which was located on a plot of land that Jacob gave his son Joseph. This is approximately half a mile south of Sychar in Samaria. Jacob's well was 100 feet deep, and this well was fed by a running spring of water. Now, when you get to verse 7, this is where the conversation begins. Uh, let me read to you verses 7 and 8 and 9, and you will see that the text itself gives us the three social barriers that we mentioned. Right, look at verse 7. John writes, A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city, the Samaritan city, to buy food. Verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, racial barrier, ask for a drink for me, a woman, gender barrier, of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So she is shocked that Jesus would even ask her for water. She knows that she's considered unclean to the Jews, but here's what she doesn't know. She doesn't know anything about this man. She doesn't know that this man knows everything about her. That she has five husbands. And the reasons why. And that she's living with a man now who's not her husband. And that she's broken. But she's there to draw water. She's there in her shame at 12 noon to draw water when nobody is around. And so she's shocked. And to a Jew, get this, even a, her bucket is unclean. Would you drink the bucket of an unclean person who is a Samaritan? And the answer for any devout, pious Jew is no. And so Jesus is there with no bucket to draw his own water. And he, when he asks for water, he's saying, will you give me a drink from your unclean bucket? She is just beyond herself that this would happen. Now this leads us to point number two. Jesus is, is about to turn the conversation and he's going to offer her water. He begins by asking for water. Now he's going to offer her water, water that satisfies the soul. Now you know this is not talking about H2O. 
Okay, This is a different type of water. Now let me read to you verse 10. It says, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now verse 10 goes from asking to now offering, if you knew who was speaking to you, if you knew that I am the Messiah, in other words, is what Jesus is saying. Now you look at verses 11 and 12, which is on the screen for you as well. It says, the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with. Where's your bucket? And the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. Now, she was a Samaritan, but she knew a thing or two about Jewish heritage. And assuming she's one of the Samaritans, regardless of her practice in life, her lifestyle, she was anticipating some type of Messiah and Redeemer, which you will see that she is well aware of the Old Testament teachings, at least of the Pentateuch, and then the tradition that comes out of that. The Samaritans believed in a Messiah who would come as a revealer and come as a redeemer of the Samaritans and Jesus would begin to reveal to her things about herself that she would not expect any stranger to know. But she doesn't get it because she's still thinking about water buckets. Where's your bucket? Where's your water? And so Jesus was breaking down that barrier. But her response and her reference to Jacob might seem sarcastic or mocking. You'll see this come up later with the Pharisees when they ask Jesus, Jesus, how do you even know Abraham? You're not even 50 years old. And Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. Right? In the same way, she's re referencing Jacob who gave them that well, who gave the well to Joseph and the descendants on that land. That's why she as a Samaritan would claim that well for herself because this is in the land of Samaria. And Jesus is essentially saying, yes, I am greater than Jacob. You just don't know. My water is greater. My well is greater. You, if you drink from me, you will be satisfied forever. Now, I want you to note something. And here's where you begin to relate to her is that she doesn't reject that offer. She doesn't quite get what Jesus is saying because she thinks he's offering magical water. But she is searching for living water. You and I are searching for satisfaction for our souls. We are digging wells. What a fitting metaphor. We are digging wells. We are going into wells everywhere looking for living water. And starting in verse 13, we begin to see what living water is. Look with me at verses 13 to 15. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. Stop right there. Everybody needs physical water. It's an illustration. Everybody needs water. You need to get water. You need to go and get water. You need water to survive. And water does not come easily. It comes easily for us. We take it for granted. There are places in this world where they do not have clean water. Water, you need to work for water. You need to dig for water. That's part of our sin consequence of the fall, 
Right? So Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. Verse 14, but whoever drinks, and here's the key, the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him, inside of us, a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And then in verse 15, the woman said to him, still not fully understanding, sir, Give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. She obviously probably gets it now that he's talking about some magical water. She's, she knows she's going to be thirsty physically, but maybe she is saying so that I don't have to hide my shame. I don't have to come at noon. I don't have to do this anymore to come out by myself to get this water in the, in the heat of day. Sir, give me this water. If you would only know, deep inside my heart, Jesus, that I've been searching for whatever you're offering. I don't quite understand what it is, but Jesus is very clear. He's telling us that this living water is internal. It springs up from within. It's not H2O. It is eternal life. He gives us more detail later, right? So when you ask the question, remember the opening question, one of the opening questions, I said, what is living water? What is living water? It's a metaphor for eternal life, but John gives us more than that. If you go to John chapter 7, John chapter 7, John chapter 7, I might have the slide for you if I don't, forgive me. John chapter 7, verses 37 to 39, it says, if anyone thirsts, Let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, notice the parallel, out of his heart will flow what? Rivers of living water. So this water comes out of you. This water is internal. And then in verse 39 of John 7, it says, Now this he said about the Spirit, capital S in my Bible. This he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So John gives you the answer in John chapter 7. What is living water? It is eternal life of the Holy Spirit. It is eternal life that you receive when the Holy Spirit comes into your heart. The Holy Spirit is a river of life. The Holy Spirit is a river that is never ending. It is a divine river that flows out of you, but it resides in you. It empowers you. Now you go back. Now you go back to our passage, and you look at verses 16 and 17, and I believe there, thank you so much, men and women upstairs. And and I have the passage on the screen for you now. And so John chapter 4, verse 16, Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband's. What you have said is true. I don't read any allegory into the five husbands. I don't see this as five kings of Samaria or anything like that. I don't think there's any warrant for that type of allegory, at least with her having five husbands. We don't know why. We don't know why she had five husbands. Could it be that, that she was promiscuous and that five men left her because she was an adulteress? Could it be that all five husbands died 
And she was a widow, but in that society, nobody's going to care. They're just going to realize, oh, those husbands died on you and you had five husbands. Even if it, was, if it was legitimate that your husbands had died, we still don't want you. Why is it that this, this man that she's living with now doesn't want to marry her? He, he's not, he's basically, she's not legitimate. She has no provision. She doesn't have someone that is actually responsible for her by the letter of the law. Why is it? I mean, I don't know. Could it be that all five husbands had died and this boyfriend doesn't want to die? So he's like, I get the hint. Every guy that you marry dies. I'm, I'm not marrying you. I'm not putting a ring on it. Right? Could it be that? We just don't know. We just don't know why. But we know she's broken and we know that Jesus knows. So that's what I meant. Maybe it takes a little bit more time for Jesus to come into the suburbs of your heart. Maybe it takes a little bit more time for us to see ourselves in the same position as this Samaritan woman. Like her, I think you and I are not dense. I think we are well aware that we are sinful and that we need grace. But I think different from her, I don't think with her, Jesus had to break down our walls because she was a moral outcast. She was at the bottom of society. She was a social outcast. She was on the margins of even Samaritan society. So you have Judaism, and she was this dirty Samaritan to the Jews. And beyond that, even among the Samaritans, she's on the outside. She's on the out and out. And so... For you and me, though, I think Jesus has to work through extra layers to reveal our need because we can deceptively tell ourselves that we can find satisfaction in this world. Yes, even we who believe in Jesus, whether it be worldly achievement, what is your well? The pursuit of success, what is your well? Has it satisfied your soul? Is it worldly comfort? Is it riches? Name your water well. Mine is called ministry success. Yes, even in the name of Jesus, we can deceptively, in the busyness of our world, dig wells. We can go everywhere digging wells, looking, thinking that things in this life, relationships, even good things, if I'm the perfect parents, if my kids are the perfect kids, then I will be satisfied. If my kids can do all the things that I wanted to do, and I'm giving them my best, good things, right? If I can preach so well and pastor so well, this is in the name of Jesus, right? If I can have ministry success, then I will be satisfied and I can die as a good pastor. You see, easily we can be deceived that we are not as broken as this woman. We are not Samaritans. We're more like Nicodemus, but maybe there's some of you here today who can relate to this woman, and I want you to come into her story because her story is our testimony, right? Is that we are searching for living water. She says, go call your husband. I I tell you this morning, go check your safety bank account. Go check your stocks. Go look at what is holding you back from surrendering everything to realizing that you are so broken and desperate that you need Jesus, not just once, but every single day. Go call your broker. Go call your accountant. 
right? And so go call your husband. Jesus is getting to the heart. She's already trying to find living water through her sinful and broken lifestyle. She's already digging wells where there's no water. Translate that for your own soul. The question is not whether or not you are looking to satisfy your soul. The question is where are you looking? Where am I looking? And this leads us to point number three. Jesus offers not just water that satisfies our soul, but the only way he can give it to us is when he offers worship that satisfies God. So point number three is worship that satisfies God. Point number two, water that satisfies the soul. Point number three, worship that satisfies God. Look with me at verses 19 to 22 where we're going to see Jesus define true worship. Verse 19, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. couple things. She's respectful. When she says, I perceive you're a prophet, she is actually acknowledging, I am not denying that I am a sinner. I am not denying that what you say is true. Secondly, Jesus is not being disrespectful when he says woman. Okay, he's not being disrespectful. Nicodemus had a name. Nicodemus had a name in society. She is nameless. She is a nobody. Nicodemus was a somebody. She was a nobody. And so in verse 19, when this woman says she perceives she's a prophet, she's ready to receive, and she tries to change the topic. She's not dumb. She tries to change the topic. Jesus starts doing the biblical counseling on her, right? Jesus starts going in there, I want to talk about your five husbands and this man you're living with. I want to get to your personal life. And she says, let's talk about where's the location of worship. You know, we Samaritans worship on Mount Gerizim. You Jews worship on Jerusalem. Which one is accurate? And Jesus doesn't mind, doesn't mind changing the topic. Why? Because living water is connected. Living water is connected to the place of worship. You see, the only way for Jesus to give us living water, because what is living water? Eternal life and the Holy Spirit. The only way for him to give us that is when he becomes the new temple. And that's why he says to her, he says, woman, believe me, you want to talk about places of, of worship. I am changing the location of worship. The location of worship, the hour is coming when I go to the cross. And it's now here, the, the age of the new covenant. There's a time where I will be the new temple, Jesus says. And after that, it won't matter if you worship in Jerusalem or Samaria or Walnut, Diamond Bar, Chino Hills or Arcadia or Brea or wherever you reside. Because the location is going to change. Where is that living water? It comes from within. It comes from your heart. I'm changing the location from, from a place in Israel to your heart where it is real. Real worship is what? In spirit and truth. Now, there is some debate. I'm, I'm, I'm off the manuscript now. I, I just forsake this. It's 1151. I'm just going to preach in the spirit. Okay, is that the place of worship, it, when, when they start debating, some of you start debating, the ESV and the NAS, it says lowercase spirit. That when Jesus says spirit and truth, he's talking about your inner being, right? 
the CSB, the Southern Baptist, the New Bible, Christian Standard Bible, capital S. That it's capital S. You worship in the Holy Spirit and truth. If you understand John 7, it's a moot point. Because whether it's your inner spirit or the Holy Spirit, the only way you're going to worship in spirit and truth is through the Holy Spirit. Why truth? Why truth? Right? When, when Jesus says, says to her that you worship what you do not know, it's because the Samaritans had rejected the rest of the Old Testament. That's why they erected the temple in Mount Gerizim. You worship what you do not know. We Jews worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But that is a minor subpoint. What is more important is Jesus getting to her heart. And so how do we get this water? How do we get this water? Is that Jesus Christ needs to go to the cross to satisfy the wrath of God on the cross. That's how we get that water. Jesus offers true worship, sinless worship that is acceptable to God. Jesus is the first person, the only person, who first goes and offers worship in spirit and truth as he becomes the true and better temple. And through him, we get living water. Water that satisfies the soul is only possible through worship that satisfies God. Let me say that again. Water that satisfies the soul is only possible through worship that satisfies God. And the hour is coming and it has come. And for us, this hour has already come. This is what Christmas is pointing towards. It's the hour of Jesus' death and resurrection. Look with me now at verse, starting in verse 23. In verse 23, Jesus says, But the hour is coming and is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit. He can't be contained. He, he's not contained by physical matter. You can't put him in Jerusalem or put him on Mount Gerizim. You can't put him in one temple. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in the heart, in spirit and truth. Verse 25, the woman said to him, here's where she knows something about theology. She says, I know the Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. And when he comes... He will tell us all things. He will reveal all things. And verse 26, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. In the original Greek, it's just I who speak to you am. And so some scholars see this as one of the I am statements. Now we won't get into that this morning because of time. But here's where I want you to go, right? Here's what's happening. Jesus offers living water to the Samaritan woman, but remember, water that satisfies the soul is only possible through worship that satisfies God. And this is only possible through the cross. And so if we were to summarize what is living water, what is this woman about to receive? It's eternal life in the Holy Spirit. How do we get this water by trusting in Christ who offered up a perfect sacrifice so that you and I can worship in spirit and truth? Let me give you the big idea then you know where I'm going. We got to go to the cross. We got to go to the only place where we will get that water. Water runneth from the cross of Christ. The big idea is Christ crosses the barriers of fallen humanity to satisfy the redemptive desires of God and man. 
Christ crosses the barriers of fallen humanity to satisfy the redemptive desires of God and man. The redemptive desire of God is true worship. God wants worshipers who can worship Him in spirit and truth. And the only way He's going to get that is through Jesus. God the Father is only going to be satisfied through His Son. And what does man want? Man wants our souls satisfied. And because of the fall of man, we're searching in all the wrong places. And so Christ on the cross offers us this satisfaction. Now what the Samaritan woman doesn't quite comprehend yet is that on the cross, Jesus will hear her sin and shame. Temporarily, he will be cut off from perfect fellowship with God. And it would be when? The sixth hour. The sixth hour. That's 12 p.m. when Jesus was crucified. He died at 3 p.m. And where would his disciples be? Gone. And Jesus would what? Be physically exhausted and dehydrated. At the sixth hour, Jesus would be alone. His disciples gone. He would be physically exhausted and dehydrated. And Jesus was crucified. He, and, but before he passed away, in John chapter 19, verse 28, Jesus says, in place of the Samaritan woman, he says, I thirst. Simple one word, I thirst. Where Matthew and Mark has it, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? John says, I thirst. For the very first time, Jesus is being cut off from living water, and he says, I thirst. And the soldiers did not understand the spiritual realities, just like she, this woman, didn't understand in the moment. So they gave him sour wine to drink in fulfillment of Scripture. But physical thirst points towards a spiritual reality. Yes, Jesus was physically dehydrated. He was crucified. But instead of leaving water, what was he drinking? He was drinking the bitter cup of God's wrath. He was bearing shame of the Samaritan woman and our shame. He was bearing sin so that he could pay for our sins and give us living water. Ooh, Christ was pouring out the riches of his glorious grace. His mercy and kindness knows no end. Just like that Samaritan woman, the mystery of the cross we cannot comprehend, the agonies of Calvary, why the perfect Holy One would crush his son who drank the bitter cup reserved for me. His blood has washed away our sin and her sin. And all we can say, if we can put ourselves into the story and into the position of this Samaritan woman, all we can say is, Jesus, thank you. The Father's wrath completely satisfied true worship in spirit and truth, Jesus, thank you. Once your enemy, once a Samaritan, once an outsider, once a sinner in need of grace, now seated at your table, and you and I seated right next to that Samaritan woman, Jesus, thank you. Water that satisfies the soul, worship that satisfies God, the woman who was confused, looking for what lovers of her soul in all the wrong places. Now she looks to Jesus and she wants to live for him. Once 
possibly promiscuous and shameful, now rescued, what did we say last week as part of God's bride? No longer part of the harlots, now part of God's bride. Not only does this water of this world leave us unsatisfied, eventually, apart from Christ, all the wells of this world will lead to the bitter cup of God's wrath. And the hour is coming, beloved, and has now come where Jesus is cut off from living water so that we who trust in him will never thirst again. Our souls can only find satisfaction because his, his sacrifice enables us to worship him in spirit and truth. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning and we ask you to give us the living water. Lord, give us eternal life in the Spirit for those of us who have it, Lord. We pray, Lord, that we would be able to look to you who offered perfect worship in spirit and truth so that we can worship through the Holy Spirit and in truth, according to the truth of your gospel, according to the truth of who you are. Lord, help us to connect and relate to this Samaritan woman and help us to come to you now and say thank you, Jesus, because you, you came on Christmas Day, born of a babe, so that you can go to the cross as a grown man on Easter. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.